episode 1109 okay uh seeing the bomb with ian oh it's not seeing with ian it's seeing the bomb with ian that's right all right i'll explain the difference all right Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DiVono, and we're back for something a little different, a little bit different. So for those who were listening along last year, you know, we went through the, the first third of Ian McGilchrist's uh, work, uh, The Matter with Things, which is incredible, incredible. Uh, you know, I'm still reading the rest of it, and there will be other material along the way that I will probably turn into their own episodes. Uh, I don't know if it will be quite as chapter by chapter, which was pretty close to what we did mm-hmm. uh, last year. Um, and partly because I think that like the part one is so foundational and then a lot of it becomes a little bit more application after that. Um, and also because I'm, I'm reading it at a slower rate, just with other things going on. So it's harder to keep up with the rate to do a consistent podcast series with it. But I also know, you know, those are very popular episodes last year. And I think, uh, you know, for good reason, because it's such fascinating material. And so what I wanted to do here was maybe take some of what we talked about and look for different ways to apply it. So, you know, for, just to give people a refresher if it's been a while or if you didn't listen to those episodes. And if you didn't listen to them at all, I, I maybe would encourage you to go back uh, and and take a, a listen to them because I, I think that there's some, you know, my delivery aside, which I think if you're listening to the Sci-Fi Christian podcast, you at least kind of like, one would presume, or you're hate listening, and we welcome those, those downloads too. Uh, but my delivery aside, you know, Emma Gilchrist just has some really fascinating things about the way the brain works and our relationship to reality and how that we perceive the world. And a lot of his work centers on the divide between the left brain, right brain, left hemisphere, right hemisphere. And, you know, if you're like me, you've heard at various times that, you know, the left hemisphere does this and the right hemisphere does that. And then you probably heard, oh, that's all nonsense. And scientists don't think that anymore. And Eva Gilchrist cuts through all of that as you know, probably one of the most foremost experts on the differences. And it's like, okay, it's not as simple as that, you know, your, your right brain is emotion and art and your left brain is logic. Like that's kind of a popular take. It's like, well, no, it's not quite that, but there are real differences in terms of how the brain understands the world where, you know, the right hemisphere sees the big picture, the left hemisphere sees details, you know, the right hemisphere uh, is going to have a more holistic view and the left hemisphere is going to be driven by just this piece, this piece, this piece without any connection between them. Uh, more than that, you know, as a great example of this, uh, and this is just a refresher for folks, one of the things I cited and, and cite Usually when I talk to people about this book, um, which I have outside of just the podcast, it's it's endlessly fascinating, is his example of the test where you have uh, a letter H written with mini twos. You can picture that in your head, like you have an H, but instead of it just being straight, solid lines, it's made up of little tiny twos in the shape of an H. And somebody with uh, right hemisphere damage so their left hemisphere is the only one intact. When they see that picture and they're asked to recreate it, they'll just write a whole bunch of twos, but they're in no discernible pattern. 
they've seen the details, they haven't seen the big picture. Uh, somebody with the opposite case, left hemisphere damage and right hemisphere fully intact, will just write an H, you know, as solid lines without making it up with any of those twos. And it's, it's totally fascinating as he gets into that material because you can see just the different ways where, uh, outside of the popular understanding of being left-brained, right-brained, it's like we actually perceive the world in different ways. And part of Ian McGilchrist's uh, thesis as a philosopher, not just a scientist, and as an aside, I think that's one of the truly valuable things about the book, is that it's a synthesis between science and philosophy. And I think that one of the dangers in our modern state is that we have become so specialized that we don't put... Uh, disciplines and conversation with one another. So I find that tremendously valuable that he does that and does it so well. But anyway, one of the things that he says is that even among folks who have both hemispheres intact, you can bias one or the other. You can tend to be somebody who looks at details without that big picture and whole cultures can go down that road. His uh, contention is that while both hemispheres are obviously needed, it is the right hemisphere that needs to be the master and the left hemisphere that needs to be the emissary out into the world. And he has a famous book that I haven't read yet, but is his precursor to the matter of things called The Master and the Emissary on that exact topic, meaning that the right hemisphere has this big picture of reality. It's engaged with flow and everything. And then the left hemisphere is going out and grabbing this detail and that detail and that detail. And when you flip that, you actually wind up with a very bad position where you're trying to recreate a whole based off of the details, based off of the picture. Um, and you're, you're not actually putting them back together correctly. And this is where some of the misunderstanding or maybe not misunderstanding, but the popular uh, reductionistic view of this of the left hemisphere being logical and the right hemisphere being emotional artistic comes in. It's like those aren't quite the right words, but they're also not entirely wrong. You know, the right hemisphere is more interested in things like narrative flow of reality. It's like when somebody's telling you a story, um, you know, if, if you and I, uh, experience something and, and, in the middle of this story that we're relating to a third party, there was a cat in the middle of it, and, and I'm telling the story, and and I say the cat's color was white, and you say it was black. It's like, okay, uh, odds are that detail doesn't actually matter that much in the grand scheme of the story. The important thing is that we saw a cat you know, run across the street or, I mean, it's a very boring story, but <laughs> gets the point across. Like it doesn't actually matter. You know, we can discuss the details, but what matters is that the cat ran across the street or whatever we happen to see the cat do. But imagine a world where uh, I relate this story and you're thinking to yourself, uh, no, the cat was actually black, not white. And instead of that just being a point that we discuss and see if maybe one or the other of us can jog our memories and arrive at a deeper sense of reality, you actually throw out my entire story because of that. Like, no, everything you're saying is wrong. Why? Because you're starting from the details up. You're trying to reconstruct the narrative from that. And it's like, so if the, the, the color of the cat is described incorrectly, it throws the whole thing into uh, a tizzy. Like, that's the left hemisphere approach, whereas the right hemisphere approach would say, well, okay, the narrative is correct. Some of the details might be wrong, but 
that doesn't matter. What matters is that we're in this ballpark area. And it's not to say none of the details matter either. Like there's this relationship, there's a discussion between them. But what matters is uh, the flow, the overall picture. And this is goes to the heart of what I find so interesting about it and, and what was so engaging is that this cuts to the, the fundamental question of what does it mean to be human? You know, are we logical, rational creatures? I would say no. You know, we are narrative creatures with a capacity for reason, which is something very, very different. What does that mean? Well, it means that as if we are rational creatures, logical creatures first and foremost, then the details, the facts matter. Right. Um, if we are narrative creatures, then it's not that facts don't matter, but that we primarily interact with the world in terms of narrative. As I'm reading some of the material in part two, this is new stuff that we haven't talked about yet. One of the things that's really fascinating is he talks about like you would assume that, OK, that's all well and good. But when it comes to science, that, of course, is going to be the inverse. Right. Well, not so fast. He actually goes through that so many great scientific discoveries are the result of an intuitive leap by the scientist, the inventor, the the individual in question, and then the details are filled in afterwards. Uh, you start with the narrative. Your brain makes a flow leap that you can't prove, and then you go back and prove figure out that it's true it's a very different way and it's a very uncomfortable way for a lot of people raised in modernism to think about interacting with the world and especially interacting with science but he points to example 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 one after another of, of exactly that type of thing uh i think that you know so uh i mentioned that in a in a previous episode that we recorded for Patreon, I'd mentioned Oppenheimer twice tonight, and there was going to be a third. So here comes the third. This is one of the things I find so fascinating about Oppenheimer, not just the movie, but I just finished reading American Prometheus, which is the, the biography the movie is based on. And Oppenheimer, J. Robert Oppenheimer, was very much a scientist like that. You know, he was, of course, one of the most brilliant physicists who ever lived, but he was also this uh, very steeped in literature and philosophy uh you know the famous quote from the bhagavad gita that comes out i'm destroy here i become death destroyer world like that's not just a nice thing christopher nolan uh threw into the movie that actually you know oppenheimer is very steeped in hindu mythology and so as this great scientist he was also a very narrative based person and it comes out uh in that so totally fascinating way of viewing the world so what I, I thought would be fun and if not fun at least a little interesting and if not interesting well you can there's 1100 other episodes of the sci-fi christian yeah. for you to listen to would be to take some of these principles and look at the world and different issues with them and with Oppenheimer, first and foremost, I found myself as I was thinking about the movie uh, and listening to this biography, thinking about the bomb, you know, the bomb out there. Uh, and I, as I found myself just contemplating this topic, because it, it, it's really a fascinating topic, everything that goes into the uh, atomic bomb, it's one where you can have a, a simple 
simplistic view of, of course, we should have dropped it, or of course, we shouldn't have dropped it. Of course, it should have been developed. Of course, it shouldn't have been developed. And then the deeper you get into the story of the bomb, the more your view, whatever it happens to be, is going to be challenged by that. Um, and I think that's one of the fascinating things that Christopher Nolan draws out so well in the film and, and American Prometheus draws out so well is that this is like a very complicated topic. You know, Oppenheimer right to the end of his life simultaneously felt enormous amounts of guilt uh, for what he had done, but also a strong pride in his work and a belief in the necessity of it. It's like, how do those reconcile? You know, one of the most, uh, the great scenes in the movie, which is true to real life, at least according to the biography, is when he, he met Truman and he had this brief contentious meeting with Truman in, in the Oval Office. And he told Truman, you know, I feel like I have blood on my hands. And uh, Truman allegedly, this part is harder to confirm, but it, it makes for a great moment in the film, hands him his handkerchief and says, would you like this? You know, basically you want to watch, you know, belittling his concerns. And so for, for Oppenheimer at the bomb, like the man who is at the center of this, it, it's this deeply back and forth question of, of the morality, not just of dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which of course wasn't his choice, um, but developing it in the first place. And as I started to contemplate that, it occurred to me, like right at the center of that is, and this, I don't want to be reductionistic and say this is the only view, but one way to view that conflict is that at the center of the debate about the bomb in Oppenheimer's mind is this right hemisphere, left hemisphere conflict, the conflict between narrative and the and facts, logic. And it's not at all clear, despite everything I've just said about how you know, the right hemisphere should be the master, that... That doesn't mean the right hemisphere is always right, and when it's in conflict with the left hemisphere, it's, it's a slam-dunk case. It's more complicated than that. And so I started to think about it not just in terms of Oppenheimer and his perspective, but in terms of the bomb as a whole. And the morality of using the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki is, of course, a, a deeply challenging question and one that is really, really draws you into that right hemisphere, left hemisphere debate, because it's simultaneously one of the most horrific acts of war ever committed and arguably saved lives. And that's the debate at the center of it. So I want to I want to get into this debate a little bit, and I want to say that thinking of this debate when you come into it there are really three facets to it um there's the historical part you know was japan going to surrender was japan on the verge of surrendering and and this wasn't necessary and that's a really interesting question we'll talk about that a little bit there's the moral part of course which is that is it ever morally permissible to use something as horrific as a, a nuclear weapon. Uh, and that's interesting, too. And we'll talk about that a little bit. 
But I mainly want to talk about the psychological aspect, the conflict of the right hemisphere, left hemisphere. So I don't want to uh, be dismissive of the historical dimension or the moral dimension. But as we'll see in a minute, for as important as both those questions are, when it comes to this particular question, they can actually they're actually used as escape valves to prevent us from going to uh, the the psychological question that is at the heart of should the United States have dropped the bomb? Yes or no. Should the United States have developed it? Yes or no. So I was thinking about this in terms of like options for how you could answer this question. And it seems like there's a, a couple of options right away um, before we get into the psychological option or the psychological conflict that is at the heart of it, that we can maybe talk through. Uh, and these are all, well, one of them's not valid, but the rest of them are all valid options to take. Uh, but I was thinking of like, so how would you answer the question of, should we have dropped the bomb? Yes, no, and why? And so we'll just start with the easiest one to get rid of, which would be uh, simply yes without moral reservation. I think it should be fairly obvious why uh, we would rule that one out, no matter how, even if you were to ultimately deem it necessary, uh, any act of war, much less the dropping of an atomic bomb, should be considered of grave moral uh, status. It should not be done lightly. So I think we, we won't say anything more about that one, but it's at least worth uh, bringing up and immediately ruling out uh, where if you are saying, no, I think uh, I think dropping the bomb was great and we, we ought to do a little more of that. Well, maybe maybe you should contemplate that position a bit uh, and do it far away from the rest of humanity, please. Okay, so now we start to get into slightly more serious takes. And this is, you know, we'll start on uh, the other side of the moral question, then we'll get into the historical one. And then, you know, we're, we're going to dismiss those, not because they're not important or not valid, um, but because uh, we're after the psychological discussion here. So the second option that we would take, uh, a much more serious one from a moral perspective, would be to say no uh, and do object on pacifistic grounds. Um, historically, you know, I think this is a little bit of an interesting one to consider. Uh, I want to phrase the question this way. If we're going to go down the pacifistic road and consider that as an option, you can take a pacifistic approach for what should America's position have been to the war as a whole. And you can rewind that even further because really – World War II is the result of the Treaty of Versailles, and, and you could rewind that all the way back to World War I and say, well, America should never gotten involved in that in the first place. And you could rewind this uh, more and more and say, well, the U.S. should never have taken X, Y, and Z policy that would inevitably lead it into conflict. The point I'm trying to get at here is that it, when you take the pacifistic argument, you want to have that, you have to have a starting point somewhere where you're going to base that argument off of. In other words, what would you do with reality as it is at X point in time? So when it comes to World War II, and especially when it comes to a discussion of the bomb, I'm, I'm not terribly interested in, uh, at least not for 
the current discussion, I think it's interesting in other ways, to say what should the U.S. have done at the beginning of the 20th century in regards to foreign policy that maybe could have prevented one or both world wars. Obviously, you know, hindsight being 2020. I'm also not terribly interested in saying what should the U.S. have done uh, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor or what should the U.S. have done leading up to that that could have, you know, kept the America out of the war in the first place. What I am interested, if you're going to take the pacifistic uh, argument, is starting from the point where America is deep in the war. You know, so if you're going to make this argument, you have to make it at that point that America is already deeply committed to this war, regardless of if you feel that it sh- the, the country should have been. So, in other words, if you're going to be the decision maker, you're going to be the god of the president or whatever who's going to make the call of what comes next. Do you want to take a pacifistic argument? I want you to actually argue that from the perspective of your in 1944, 1945, you know, not 1935, because that changes the game considerably, because whatever you do at that in other words, um, and let's even take it a step further because, say, Germany is surrendered at this point. So you're really um, looking at the war with Japan. And what you don't want to do, maybe I should have said this so as a quick aside to maybe set the stage a little bit better historically for folks who aren't super familiar with, with this chunk of World War or two is that at this point in the war, you're dealing with a situation where what you don't want to do is invade the home islands for Japan. Why? Because at that point, this thing is going to become brutal and bloody, and it's going to take a very, very, very long time. Okay, so if you want to take the, um, the, the pacifistic argument at this point, you have to take into account that whatever you do is going to result in the loss of a lot of life. You take a purely pacifistic argument, pull out uh, completely, you're going to kill a lot of our allies. You're likely going to start a war between Russia and Japan. Because remember, at this point in the war, Russia is allied uh, to, to the allies, despite having Uncle Joe in power. So there isn't a great option for a purely 100% pacifistic uh, position. You really are faced with the trolley problem at a geopolitical level. Um, now, we could talk about... I- I'm familiar with a trolley problem. I feel like I can't right now tell you exactly what it is. Okay, is so it yeah, worth stopping? Yeah, we can stop for a second. So the trolley problem, in essence, is that um, imagine that you are operating the switch uh, that can switch the tracks from left tracks to right tracks. So a, a trolley, a train, whatever, is going to come down the tracks. It's running away. It can't stop. can't be stopped. So it's going to go on either track A or track B. If you do nothing... It's going to go on track A and kill three people. Those three people who are lying on the tracks and they also can't move. Obviously, laced in hypotheticals. Okay. So if you do nothing, three people are going to die. If you switch the track to track B, one person is going to die. But you now are actively killing that person. 
that's the typical frame of the trolley problem. You know, in other words, doing nothing, and it's a good, good framing for a pacifistic argument. You do nothing, more people are going to die, but are you more morally culpable if you actually throw the switch and kill the person on track B? There's not a wrong or right answer to it, but it, it gets into the weight of questions like this. In other words, there isn't an option where nobody dies, mm -hmm. and you get to choose which option is taken. There's only matters of degree. So the other aspect to the, the pacifistic argument is that you could say at this point, well, I would, I would negotiate a generous surrender with Japan. We'll actually get there in just a second, so let's take surrender off, off the books for the moment, we'll get there when we start talking about the historical part. So all that to say is that the pacifistic argument for the bomb, against the bomb rather, is interesting, but it's a little bit naive. I'm not sure that it is truly historical, historically tenable. I would admire those who would, who would hold to this argument, uh, but I would disagree with them. Doesn't mean that you had to drop the bomb. We'll get to that in a second, but there's, there isn't, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is not a, a truly pacifistic option here. There's only the trolley problem. You have to pick your poison. Okay, so that comes down to um, the question of should Japan have surrendered or was Japan on the cusp of surrendering? And this is a question of enormous historical debate. And it goes something a little bit like this. So uh, if Japan was not on the or was on the cusp of surrendering then america should have just held out a little bit longer not dropped the bomb negotiated a surrender we never have hiroshima and nagasaki okay if japan was not on the cusp of surrendering then you're in a situation where you want to avoid the invasion of the home islands at all costs because that's going to be ruthless and bloody to give you an idea of how bloody and brutal the u.s anticipated that that being you're talking about hawaii right no 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 wait, i'm talking wait. about the japanese islands oh okay you said the home islands from america's point of view from the japanese point okay. of view uh like the main islands of, okay. of japan so if to give you an idea of how brutal that was anticipated to be at the time america was contemplating that as a very real possibility and they printed up however many purple heart awards you know for what you get if you're wounded in battle uh they thought they were going to need they're still using those today they wow. printed up so many because that's how many they thought they were going to need hmm. that's how horrible it was going to be so from a loss of life perspective there is no question that the invasion of the home islands will kill more people than were killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay. However, it's still a very interesting historical question of was that a real situation? And there's good evidence in both directions. You know, there's very good evidence that the Japanese were close to surrendering and maybe they just needed a little bit more encouragement. Maybe there things could have been negotiated, all of that fascinating historical debate and one i'm totally not interested in for tonight the reason being is that if your argument against the bomb 
is that it wasn't necessary because Japan was about to surrender. You might be right historically, but from a psychological perspective, you've sidestepped the entire debate. It's like, you know, is it uh, morally permissible to uh, kill somebody who invades your home and, and threatens your family? You know, we could say yes and, and have a moral or no and have a moral debate about that. But to say, well, if you were to say, well, of course not, because you, Ben, are in my home and you're not a threat to my family. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't really answer the question. Like saying that it's not necessary in this case uh, because I'm not a threat to your family and, and I'm not. Thank you. Yes. Uh, like you haven't actually engaged in the debate, the moral debate that we're trying to have. You simply said, well, it wasn't necessary then. Yeah, that, that's not what I'm after. Like I'm not after uh, a historical debate. I'm after the question of this. And so now we're, we come down to uh, – the question of let's actually engage the psychological part. And this is where we start to get into a little bit of the left hemisphere, right hemisphere dynamic, because I want to say for a second, either truly or hypothetically, you can have whatever position you want, but let's just go with this for a second and assume historically that the Japanese were not going to surrender. So the quickest way to end the war, the only way to end the war Anytime soon, in this historical scenario, maybe this wasn't reality, doesn't matter, we're trying to have a, a debate, is to drop the bomb. There's no way around it. If you want to end the war with the least amount of life lost. And when you actually, and, and people, you know, this is a viable historical uh, position that a great many people have taken and continue to take 80 years later. There's a number of things that come into this. Number one is what we just talked about with the whole invasion of the home islands. You avoid that. Uh, another aspect to this is that for as horrific as the atomic bomb was, uh, there are other things like the fire bombings of Dresden in World War II uh, that the Allies did that actually killed more people than did the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You have a dynamic here where the U.S. dropped pamphlets onto those cities encouraging the civilians to to leave and so you have a dynamic there of trying to minimize the loss of civilian life you have an aspect and one of the more interesting aspects and and uh this one i was fascinated by because i had this thought and then i finished reading american prometheus and i realized that this was actually a historical consideration at the time which is that we're engaged we're on the cusp of this cold war with russia we know we're going to head into an arms race, and there was this aspect of it where if you use this bomb once and show the world, maybe it never needs to be used again. Okay, so that one's a little bit complicated because it's actually saying the best way to prevent nuclear weapons is to use them once and show everybody how horrific they are. I'm not, and again, I'm not saying I'm not taking this argument. I'm just laying it out there for folks. So the argument would go something like this. If the U.S. and Russia get into a Cold War and that Cold War becomes hot, the weapons that are developed decades later, and this is accurate and true, are going to dwarf 
the A-bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In other words, they're going to be many, 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 many times worse. You know, they're going to kill millions. They're going to do untold damage, and there's going to be a lot more of them than there were in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the best way to prevent that, or one way to prevent that, is to give the most horrific demonstration possible to the world to say, you don't want to go down that road. Otherwise, it remains an unknown, and the odds of them being used are much more tempting. It's part of the... Go ahead. So you're saying because the bomb was used and people saw how bad it was, it makes it less likely people will want to develop more. Not develop more, but use more. Okay. And if they hadn't, if it hadn't been used, there'd still be a mystery of what does this actually look like? How yeah. how bad is this? One hundred percent. And so we may build even worse bombs because we don't know how bad. Well, this- we have built worse bombs, and so this is one of the things that comes through in both the movie and the book is that there's a difference between the a bomb the atomic bomb that was dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki and the hydrogen bomb um which has been developed later which is orders of magnitude more devastating and horrific so here's the scenario that gets played so out if somebody says nuclear bomb are they describing an a bomb or an h bomb big umbrella they're all they're all nuclear bombs they're all nuclear there's just yep. different there's an atomic Correct. and an and a hydrogen and and i'm probably not describing the science but just there's bigger and worse ones so imagine this scenario uh the bomb is not dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki the japanese surrender the u.s and russia enter the cold war just as we've always seen the arms race begins both u.s and russia begin developing uh hydrogen bombs and large-scale nuclear bombs but because there isn't this sort of mental block from the horror of those two events the people in charge on one side or the other are more willing to use them. Nuclear bombs get used, just like they did in World War II, but this time, there's many, many, many more of them, and the world enters into a nuclear wasteland as a result. Full-scale nuclear war. Have you heard... Why would there be many, many, many more? Because there were. Like, at the time... The U.S. only had those two bombs. That was it. Mm-hmm. It was brand new technology. You say, wait 20 years, now you have hundreds, thousands on both sides. Oh, I see what you're saying. So we used two, we showed them what it was like. Or I used guess two the, when there's only two to use. Right. But you're saying in a different world, they're not used there. The yep. initial demonstration is more than two. Exactly. Okay. When they finally get used in combat, there's not just two of them. Okay. There's 2,000. You know, it's like one of the most horrifying and famous Einstein quotes. Is he said, I don't know what weapons World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with sticks and stones. Hmm. Meaning that when if we cross that threshold to World War Three the bombs that are used at that point will send humanity back to the stone age. Hmm. That's what you want to avoid. You want to avoid that at all cost. Now, everything about that and mutually assured destruction sounds like absolute insanity. And of course, that's part of what is sometimes very funny in Dr. Strangelove is the satire of that approach. Historically, it worked. And we could argue all day, did it work accidentally or on purpose? But historically, it worked. 
So we have to at least give this argument credence. And this isn't just an accident that people were assuming that. This was part of the logic that was put in place to use the atomic bomb. There are There is speculation, and this is speculation, that Truman knew or believed the Japanese were going to surrender, but used the bomb anyway as a demonstration to the Russians. In other words... Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not the final shots of World War II. They were the first shots of the Cold War. Okay. Okay? Very fascinating argument. All of that is to say that you can make a strong case. I'm not saying I'm taking this view. But you can make a strong case that the use of the atomic bomb at Hiroshima and Nagasaki saved untold lives and possibly even the world. Okay, like that's a really disturbing argument. And all I want to say is I'm not saying I'm necessarily taking that, but it's a compelling case. And you have to take that seriously, especially from the the psychological perspective. Here's the problem. The problem is the other side. We look at it with the right hemisphere. There's something mythologically narratively, when we look at the flow of reality, something transcendently wrong with the atomic bomb, that everything in us as humans recoils from it. In other words, logically, you can hear the case. You can look at the pieces. You can say, not only was it maybe necessary, but it, it wasn't even at the top of the list in terms of loss of life in wartime actions during World War II, which is true. That's actually true. There are other events, other military actions that resulted in more a greater loss of life than either Hiroshima or Nagasaki. But there is a mythological transcendent narrative value to the atomic bomb that humanity can't wrap their arms around. There's something about that. There's something about that that is so repulsive to the human soul that it that even though you can logically get to that point that this wasn't even the worst one, so why are we talking about it? Why aren't we talking about the Dresden firebombings? Because the Dresden firebombings weren't a nuke. <laughs> it's like everything about it, the mushroom cloud, the radiation, the fallout, the, all of that. There's something about it that reaches deep into the human psyche in a way we can't quite comprehend. Logically, logically, if you were to, to take, you know, say the Japanese weren't going to surrender then logically, from a trolley problem perspective, dropping the bombs saves lives. Logically. Narratively, it's one of the most horrific things humans have ever done. And this is, this is what I mean, where it's like you look at this from the kind of the Ian McGilchrist lens. It's not that there's a clear-cut answer, because I'm not saying that just because humanity is repulsed by this at a primal level that that means it was wrong. I'm not saying that either. But there's something here. There's a debate where the logical and 
narrative, mythological parts of our brains are fundamentally divided when you look at a question like this. This is also another reason why you should see Oppenheimer not on your phone. Okay. Uh, it, because this is part of what I think Christopher Nolan reached into this, and it's a great book. I would, I would actually encourage people to read the book, too. Wait, he, what, what did you do first? Watch the movie first or read the book first? I'd watch the movie first. Um, but you could do either order. I mean, that's maybe I'm biased because that's the order I did. But he reached in there and he saw this aspect to it. He saw the mythological weight of developing this weapon. And it it's the fundamental crossroads between these two. And this is what I mean by where there's a historical debate. Of course, there's a moral debate. But there's something fundamental about the dropping of the bomb that reaches into the psychological parts of us. And I think that not enough has been done to actually deal with that in this question. And I, I would argue that the the dropping of the atomic bomb is uniquely mythological in human history, if for no other reason than unlike other atrocities, we can actually see it. Other atrocities are are hidden behind the pages of textbooks or in, you know, stories or legends. This one you can actually watch footage of, and it changes the dynamic uh, for us. So I don't, I'm, I'm not going to tell people what to think. Um, this has been a debate that's been going on for 80 years. Mm -hmm. It's going to continue for probably 800 more. Uh, but in addition to the historical moral parts, look at it from that perspective. It's fascinating stuff. It is. I've never heard that argument. I, to be honest, I haven't researched a lot about World War II, although you pick up on some things along the way. That's true. But I've never heard that there were... Well, I've never heard that Japan was potentially close to surrendering. And I. so then because I've never really thought through all these different moral implications, of, although in general, using a nuclear bomb... Maybe seems a little bit overboard, but use it now. You bring up a point of well, what if that saved the world? So, right. Well, do you want to be honest and just say where you land? I don't know where I land. I honestly don't. I mean, I think that the case for J Japan uh, being close to surrendering is a strong one. I mean, it's ultimately historical speculation, uh, but the more interesting one is is the Cold War aspect. Like mutually assured destruction is such a fascinating topic because it's it's absolutely insane and it probably worked. Hmm. Like nothing about that should work. Like let's just have tons and tons of nukes pointed at each other. But it's also you know it's game theory, right? It's like uh, it, you know if, if it's if there's four potential outcomes, one where uh, we both win, we both survive, one where you survive and I don't one where I survive and you don't, one where neither of us survived, well, I'm very invested in only reaching one of the ones where I survive. So let's say in this example, I don't care if you survive or not. So I either want us both to survive or I survive and you don't. And you feel the same way in the opposite direction. Like suddenly, from a game theory perspective, we're now both very, very invested in uh, option, you know, the option where we both survive. Why? Because we both have the potential to destroy each other. If one of us loses that potential, then from a game theory perspective, my quickest way to victory is to blow you up because I don't care about your survival. This is so interesting tonight because I've heard of the trolley problem. 
I wouldn't have been able to say exactly what it was. You explained it. Game theory, I've heard of. You explained it. And now I'm just left with one more question. I've heard of this thing called the prisoner's dilemma. <laughs> what is the prisoner's dilemma? Oh. If you get I, this, I've, it's three for three that you've taught I, me. These. I know it, but I can't recall it off the top of my head. Oh, man. This but, is the way to end this episode. No, no. So let's, we could take another second on mutually assured destruction. So mutually assured destruction, then, is is another one like this where from a a narrative myth perspective, it seems insane. Like, let's save the world by stockpiling nukes and pointing them at each other. But it probably worked. I say probably because you can certainly make an argument that the Cold War ended um, and we just never got to that point and, and it was insanity and didn't work because of that. But even things like, you know, you hear about the U.S. and, and the Soviet Union being able to blow each other up ten times over. Like, that actually makes sense, too, even though it's also totally crazy. Why? Because if we get into a situation where we're negotiating becoming friends, I don't want to compromise my game theory position, but I do want to be able to show you I'm coming to your side. So if I can decommission 50% of my nukes, but still be in a position where I haven't compromised my game theory play, that's where I want to be. So all these things are, are totally fascinating. I think game theory and prisoner's dilemma may be Oh, the prisoner's dilemma is, is the one where like it's um They're almost the yeah, same you're, thing. You're you're negotiating and I don't yeah, I, I don't know how right to explain here. it. There's four possible outcomes for prisoners A and prisoner B. If A and B both remain silent, they will each serve one year in prison. If A testifies against B and B remains silent, A will be set free and B serves three years in prison. If A remains silent, but B testifies against A, A will serve three years in prison and B will be set free. If A and B testify against each other, they will each serve two years. Right. I guess I can't tell what's... I mean, there's a lot of options there. But they're saying that prisoner's dilemma is mixed into game theory. So it's all connected. Yes, that's that's just a... uh, That must be what... That's an illustration of game theory. Yeah, it must be what sparked my memory. Because as you're talking about game theory, I was like, this... Is making me think of prisoners' dilemma. They are all connected. So. Yes. Yeah. All right. Good. Very educational episode, Ben. Thank you very much. Now, and I do feel more encouraged than ever to finally check out Oppenheimer. Although I was always going to see it. Should this be a theater viewing? Maybe. Well, again, the case for the theater viewing, like Christopher Nolan would tell you, IMAX, sound design, oh, and I- you want that, like sound design, and also you don't want the temptation to look at your phone. You think I'm tempted to look at my phone while I watching every, movies? I think everybody is because I think we're all hooked on the dopamine of it. Hmm. Uh, you don't want the temptation to do that because you want to be drawn into the film. Okay. All right, listeners. That's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben DeBono. And we are the Sci-Fi Christian signing off. Goodbye.